want to figure out how I can get that sword into my sermon now. That's, uh, that's outstanding. A little bit of feedback. Good morning. Um, I love this pillar right here. It makes it so easy to see Emily. She's back there. I'm moving. Is that going to work all right for the sound people? All right. I'm not out in front of these things. Um, good morning and welcome. Um, do we need to move this thing? Is that okay? You're good. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're very glad that you're here. And uh, we're a bunch of people who love Jesus and call him master and king. If you're visiting because you might be trying to figure out who he is or what he might have to do with your life, we're especially glad that you're with us. And welcome to all of you out there in the um, virtual world. It's a little strange talking to a camera. We're, we're super glad for all who are here, whether virtually or personally. Um, I just want to pray really quickly. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to meet as a community. And we pray that you will, um, that your name, Father, will be honored this morning, that you will get glory for your name, hallowed be your name, that you will help us to turn our hearts and minds to you, and that you will unite all of us, whether we're here in this room or the room upstairs or out um, in various living rooms, that you will unite us all in your spirit this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this is the, the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, it's a time that some Christians really foc focus especially on waiting. And it's interesting to me to think about that this year, because in, in 2020, more, most of us have a more heightened awareness of waiting than we've had perhaps in other years, because frankly, we are all waiting for a COVID vaccine and a COVID cure and a return to normalcy. We're, we, most, most people that I talk to have a heightened sense of waiting for something in a way that we haven't had to before. And, and this morning, though, we want to talk about what we, if we're the church of Jesus Christ, and we are going to be a people who wait, um, what should rightly capture our longings? Well, we've been in the book of Acts now for the last several weeks. And one of the sub-themes of that story we've been telling is what motivated this young church? What motivated true Israel back in the time of Christ and before Christ? And the corollary, of course, is what motivates us as a church 2,000 years on. Well, I think Joel last week said we weren't going to be in Acts anymore. We we're going to take a break for Advent. That's what Linda told me. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Because Joel actually designed Advent to be in the book of Acts for the two, first two weeks. And uh, so in case you're thinking that I'm a rebel who decided to stick with Acts during Advent. No. Anyway, actually, it's not Joel's fault. But preaching team decided that we were going to uh, have Jordan tell the story of Stephen's uh, arrest and martyrdom two weeks ago and leave out his big, long defense in chapter 7. And that we would save that for the first two weeks in Advent. And so uh, this week and next, that's what we'll be doing. Um, 2,000 years ago, as has been talked about in the song and in, 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 in Brad's great uh, illustration, uh, Israel had been waiting for the Messiah to come for, for, for several centuries. 
And it's attested to in the Old Testament, in the prophets and the Psalms. Here's a Psalm in Malachi that's really well known this time of year. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's in Malachi 3, but you'll find lots of passages in the prophets and Psalms talking about this coming king. But 2,000 years ago, the leadership and the common folk in Israel had largely stopped longing for a variety of reasons. They lost hope, and they'd put their hopes elsewhere. The leaders loved the position that they had. It was tenuous because they were under Roman occupation, and so they worked even harder to maintain it. The the common folk just wanted to live their life in as much peace as possible. They wanted to work their jobs, raise their kids, spend time at the synagogue, spend time together in their various homes, enjoying each other's company in the day-to-day flow of life. They had simple desires that were no doubt tempered by the fact that they were under Roman rule. Well, rather than fulfilling those desires, or at least as they felt them, as, as many as all the different guys who've been speaking the last few weeks have attested, the coming of Jesus blew all of that up. It blew it up in a big way. Jesus wasn't interested in political power for Israel, and he wasn't interested in a half-baked idea of peace and security. He was wholeheartedly focused on seeing his father's kingdom come and his father's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He was focused on defeating the age-old enemy of God and his kingdom purposes. And he came, he said, to proclaim release to the captive, give sight to the blind, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to move the story of God and the story of Israel to its next big phase. And his death and resurrection, and ascension, and return as spirit into his people blew things up even more. And that is what Stephen has to say to his fellow Jews. So we're going to pick up, if you are have a Bible in some fashion, we're, we're starting in chapter 7. Uh, but I'll just tell you, at the very uh, end of chapter 6, we read that Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and full of grace and power, and he was doing great wonders among the people. That resulted in opposition from certain groups of Greek Jews. They dragged Stephen before the Sanhedrin, which was the high council in Jerusalem, and accused him of blasphemy. As we pick up the story in chapter 7, the high priest asks Stephen, are these things so? Now, if you'd just been dragged before a group of 70-ish men in a room and asked, hey, you've been charged with saying X, Y, Z. Did you? Is it true? Did you say these things? What would you have answered? Think about that for a minute. You've just been dragged into this room. Picture you're Stephen. You're sitting in this room. I don't. There aren't 70 people here right now. There's a lot more people than this, and they're just like sitting up there looking at you. Well, if you're married, or if you've ever been a child in a relationship to an adult, you probably know exactly what you would have done or said. You would have gotten defensive. I would have. I mean, that's where we go. 
You start explaining it. Ever since Eve said, uh, the serpent deceived me. And ever since Adam said, the woman that you gave me told me to eat, so I did. This has been sort of part of our standard MO. <laughs> shift around, blame shift. And my guess is that, that many of us would have done that with Stephen. Stephen didn't even address the question let alone answer it. Instead, he launched into a history of the story of God and the story of God's interaction with Israel as a people. He started with Abraham, and as we'll hear next week, he ends with Christ. So we're going to go through this. Rather than read it all in one long passage, which would be long, we're going to take it in chunks. So we're going to start in Acts 7, verse 2. Stephen said, brothers and fathers, Hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living, the land of Canaan. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. This first segment, in this first segment of the story of God, Stephen points us back to the account in Genesis 12 and 13, where God called Abram and made him a twofold promise. He promised him that he would have descendants you could not count. And he promised him that they would, they would own this land, all of it, as far as Abraham could see. And he told him the purpose of the promise. The purpose of the promise was that God intended to bless the whole world through Abraham. In Genesis 12, in 12, 1 to 3, in part, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor those who, you, who dishonor you. And in, all, in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. He goes on in chapter 13 to say, Look, Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, as far as you can see to the north, the south, the west, and the east, all the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so no one can count the dust of the earth. Your offspring can also be, if one can count the dust, your offspring can also be counted. So Stephen starts by fixing their gaze on God's beginning with Israel in Abraham. He then reminds his hearers that God promised also, this isn't the part of the promise that's the, our favorite part, that they would be temporarily enslaved and afflicted for 400 years in another land, which turned out to be Egypt. Let's read on in Acts 7, verse 6 and 7. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, your descendants will come out and worship me in this place. When Stephen goes on, Abraham is now 99 years old. It's 24 years after moving to Canaan 
We're in verse 8. And God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12th patriarchs. Genesis 17 is a key part of this Old Testament story that, again, Stephen doesn't cover in detail, but he, he, they know what he's talking about. Genesis 17, 9 to 11 says this in part. God said to Abraham, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you will be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Stephen then fast forwards the story. Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah. Jacob and Esau were born to Isaac and Rebekah. The promise that was given to Abraham passed first to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to his sons. Well, Jacob and Israel, I'm sorry, Jacob, whose name is Israel, had 12 sons by four wives. His most beloved wife was Rachel who bore him his last two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. As the firstborn of his most beloved wife, Joseph was apparently Jacob's most favored son. Well, this didn't make his brothers that happy. Stephen has jumped ahead about 170 years in the story, and he continues in verse 9. And the patriarchs, being jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made rule and made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Stephen is telling this to these 70 men. Keep that in your head. Joseph sent, he summoned his father, Jacob, and all his kindred, about 75 people in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he later died there, he and all our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Well, the story of Joseph, I think many of you know it. It's one of the most remarkable stories in the entire Bible. When Joseph was 17 years old, he was 17, his envious 10 older brothers, I, I, Benjamin may have been dragged along for the ride, but I, it's definitely the older guys sold him to some slave traders who were headed for Egypt. You can read the whole story. I hope that you will. If you don't know the story, even if you do know it, go back and read it. It's in Genesis chapters 37 through 46. Joseph is a poster child for how to wait faithfully and trust in the promises of God. While in slavery, Joseph went up and down. He had major league dramatic ups and downs. He even spent time in prison after being falsely accused of a crime. Well, things finally, God got him out of that prison. And at the age of 30, 
So he's been there 13 years. Pharaoh makes him prime minister of Egypt. He goes from being sold into slavery to being prime minister. And about nine years later, his position made it possible for him to save his father and his brothers and his whole clan from famine. It also led to the fulfillment of God's promise that they would spend 400 years enslaved in a country not their own. Now, we're not going to read the rest of the passage that I was assigned this morning for the sake of time. Um, but in Acts 17, I'm sorry, 7, 17 to 29, Stephen fast forwards about 330 years and tells the story of the slavery and the hard labor of the Lord's people under a new Pharaoh. It will not surprise you to know, and it doesn't surprise any of us to know, that that led to despair and loss of hope among the Israelites. As we look around and we interact with our friends, people that we run into, uh, people we're close to, people we're just mildly acquainted with, people in America, for the most part, are really bummed about COVID. We are sick and tired of the disease. We are sick and tired of what we have to do to deal with it. We are at odds with each other about how we ought to deal with it. We have all kinds of people at odds with each other, even within families, about whether to wear masks or not wear masks, or how much lockdown we ought to have, et cetera, et cetera. You know all the stories. You read the news. These people had been slaves in hard labor for hundreds of years, uh, which calls me up a little bit short if I get too fussy about um, the consequences of this virus. They had despaired. Most of them had lost hope. Into this horrible situation, Moses was born. Stephen tells us that he was raised as the adopted daughter. This is the part that we're not reading in detail. He was raised as the adopted daughter of Pharaoh. I'm sorry, the, he was raised as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. No, this was back then, not now. Um, sorry, bad joke. Couldn't pass it up. And about, um, he also tells us about Moses' presumption that uh, when he was about 40 years old, that God would use him to relieve them from their situation by force. And it led him to murder an Egyptian. And the fallout of that was that Moses fled from Egypt at the age of 40, where he lived for the next 40 years with his new wife and his two sons. Again, you can read this story, and I hope you will, in the first two chapters of Exodus. Next week, uh, Jordan's going to pick up the story in verse 30, which is going to tell us more about the life of Moses and lead us to the Lord Jesus in the story. Stephen's overarching message in all of chapter 7 to these 70 men is remember who you are. Remember who God is and who you are. You are sons of Abraham. That means you are sons of the promise. The promise is for you. It's for your children. It's for your children's children. It's for the whole world. By returning to the story of God, Stephen calls the heart of his listeners to the big picture and the place of Jesus in it. How did Stephen know enough to rattle off this whole story? How many of you had a chance to read chapter 7 this week? Anybody? All right. Fantastic. Thank you. 
I tell you, there's a lot in there. And he just stood up and he didn't, you know, spend all week getting ready to prepare a sermon and show up and put on his mic and make sure his mask fit and all that kind of stuff. How did he know all this stuff? Well, he was clearly empowered by the Holy Spirit, and I don't want to diminish that. But he, the Spirit, had access to all that had been planted in the heart and the mind of Stephen. Stephen came prepared. He was a living testimony to the truth of Psalm 1, 1 and through 3. This is what Psalm 1 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that does what? Yields its fruit in due season, and its leaf doesn't wither. In all he does, he prospers. Stephen was a tree whose fruit, uh, that yielded its fruit in that moment. Stephen's sermon was marked by hope in God and in God's promise and by preparation that made the story of God his chief preoccupation. But the Jewish leaders had stopped seeing themselves humbly as people of the promise meant to bless the world. They now saw themselves in self-righteous terms as better than the world, and for that matter, better than most other Israelites. And among the common people, there were also those who were self-righteous. And many others who just wanted to do their best to get by, just survive in a world that was quite disinterested in their religion. Well, we too are a people of the story. We are people of the promise. And God's plan, his purpose, is to bless the entire world through the church, through Christ, through his church. When, it, when we speak of the priesthood of the believers, That has a lot of different connotations, but a major one is to be a priesthood of God to the world. It is a priest is one who brings God to another. Do we humbly see ourselves as people of the promise? Do we see ourselves as people of the promise here to bless the world? Do we see ourselves in self-righteous terms as better than people in the world or as better than a lot of other Christians. Or perhaps we struggle not to see ourselves as those who are committed to a completely irrelevant religion. We're committed, we believe it, but we sure can't figure out how it fits into the world that we desperately want to fit into. You know, that, that, that idea of being committed to a religion that's hopelessly disconnected from the culture we want to fit into is, is I have too many friends of all ages who have left the faith because of that very hopelessness. It just doesn't work. If the focus of Advent, Stephen, is, is expectation, waiting, longing, What is it we're waiting for? Israel had long been waiting for deliverance, for the coming kingdom, for deliverance, peace, and the justice that the kingdom would bring. The more humble and contrite among them also hoped for the deliverance from their own constant sinful rebellion. That was still true of some in first century Palestine, and they were the happy Israelites who met the Lord's appearing with joy. 
If Israel waited for the coming king and his kingdom, and that king has already come 2,000 years ago, what are we waiting for? How do, what do we fix our hearts, our longing on? The king has already come. He has not, he's, he's here with us in spirit. In Christ, we are alive. We are dead to sin. We're a free people. We've been delivered from our greatest enemies. We've been delivered from slavery to sin, from fear of death and the rule of Satan. We live in the time of already, not yet, but in Christ, our deliverance has already come. And the kingdom, though not fully consummated, is here. So what do we wait for? What ought to inspire our longings? Well, this is an exercise you might want to try. What is it you long for? Are our longings limited to a list of things that will make life easier? A COVID vaccine would be at the top of that list and a cure. A good or a better paying job. Children who grow up as well-adjusted, happy, successful, and productive citizens. Anybody who's a parent will, if they're honest, tell you, yes, they do hope for that. Long life and health for ourselves and those that we love. Or being able to retire someday and enjoy life. Those are all good things. They're even good to pray for in their place. Every one of them. But none of those things that I just listed are eternal. None of them are the things above that Paul talks about setting our minds on. They're all good, and they're all worth praying for, but they aren't eternal. They're not even distinctly Christian. They're just good things that people the world over hope for. They're good things that God gives to the righteous and the unrighteous, just like he gives the sun and the rain. And the sun and the rain are good things, and those things are good things. Perhaps some of us don't even long for all of those things because some of them are not on our list because they might not be Christian enough. They're too base to desire, um, even though they are undoubtedly blessings of God that he bestows on all kinds of people throughout the world. In either case, maybe our desires are too small. Paul writes in Colossians 3 that we should set our minds on things above. And in Romans 8, set our minds on the glory to come. Colossians 3, 4 even says, when Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition and I might add to this quote, relief from COVID-19 lockdowns. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with these things when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. The primary focus of the Advent season, which is a term we get from the Greek word parousia in the New Testament, is not Christmas. It's not primarily about nostalgia for the coming of Christ as a baby born in a cattle shelter and laid in a feeding trough. That Greek word parousia is used 17 times in the New Testament to refer to the second coming of Christ. 
Advent is primarily about looking ahead and longing for the bodily return of the Lord Jesus. So my first, so my, my closing thoughts and a couple of companion exercises. First this month, as we celebrate the Lord Jesus coming to earth as a baby boy, which by the way, I would love to give a whole sermon on that because it's the most momentous thing if you want to read, I'll just tell you, if you want to read something about that, read in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, read the chapter on the incarnation. It's the most amazing event in the history of the world that the God of creation became a creature. It'd be like, Scott, have you ever built anything in your life? What'd you build? What'd you build? Uh, it was a model car. Great. Scott once built a model car. It would be like Scott becoming a plastic model car. Only it's even more ridiculous that the eternal God became a creature, a physical thing. As we celebrate the Lord Jesus coming to earth as a baby boy to begin the establishment of his kingdom on earth. If you are one who practices these three and a half weeks to practice longing, let it be for the longing of his return in the flesh to complete and fully consummate the bringing of his kingdom on earth. Here's an exercise. Every time you find yourself frustrated in the next three weeks, thinking or praying about a vaccine or a cure for COVID, go ahead and finish that prayer because I, I am praying. I'm asking the Lord to deliver us from the evil of COVID-19. That's a good prayer. You don't have to pray it the way I pray, but it's okay. Pray for it. But every time that happens, every time you find yourself doing it, here are two things I invite you to pray for, to long for, and to pursue every day. First, that Christ, who is your daily bread and is here right now, will mold and shape your heart and your mind and your life. And second, that the Lord Jesus will return soon in bodily form to consummate and complete his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You know what? If that prayer doesn't feel authentic to you, and that's okay, it may not be real to you, then I would just simply ask the Lord to put in your heart a longing for his kingdom and a longing for his return. He's coming back as a human. He came 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost in spirit. He is showing up again in a human body to establish his kingdom. Pray with me. I, it's one of my common prayers. Lord, put a bigger lung in me than I already have for that return. Second, so the first one, that was my first observation and my first exercise. Secondly, as we consider the Apostle Peter's exhortation to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason, there's hope in us. If we are considering that, let us strive to write the story of God in our hearts and in our minds so that it becomes the story that preoccupies us. Stephen didn't have to prepare because he was already completely captivated by the story of God. It's what mattered to him. Here's an exercise for the next 12 months. The first exercise was for the next three and a half weeks. You can do it longer. This one's for the next 12 months. Read your Bible regularly. A lot of you already do that. 
Some of you may do it very sporadically or not sporadic is the wrong word. Um, you might pick it up and read one thing one day and another thing the next day. There are lots of different ways to read the Bible. I'm encouraging you to read it in a way that you get the story. And if reading the Bible is too big a deal, I would set a preliminary goal to just start with Genesis and Exodus. If you'll read Genesis and Exodus, you will get a whole heap and helpful, I just tripped over my own words, a big serving of the story of God. Um, If we want to be ready to give a defense like Stephen's, we need to know that story and let the Lord plant it in our hearts and minds. So tell the story of God to yourself. Tell it to each other over and over again so that when we are called to explain why we hope in Christ, whether by the curious or by the contentious in the culture around us, or by the doubts that sometimes creep up in our own minds, we will be ready with the only story that leads to freedom. Well, the members of the leadership team are going to come up right now and uh, help us take communion. They're going to hand out little cups. There's two little, it took me a while to figure these things out. It's real easy to figure out how to open the juice part, but there's a little tiny thing on the top that you want to take the, the wafer out first. When you get your cup, please peel the part of the lid that gets the wafer out and then peel the lid off the juice and then wait a moment and we'll all eat and drink together. These are the words that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup and after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in his second letter to Timothy in chapter 4, Paul says this about his own time on earth. He tells Timothy that his time for departure has come. He says, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. As we eat this bread and drink from this cup this morning, let us do so in remembrance of the Lord Jesus, who died for us that we might have life, and let us long for his appearing. Amen.